0: We're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Hello out there, Radioland, and welcome to a special miniature episode of One Track Mind that I'm creatively calling OTM Mini. I am Ryan Luis Rodriguez, your wonky and affable host and born-again cinephile. On OTM Mini, we give bite-sized little morsels that tackle movies we normally wouldn't get around to on the podcast proper. And this week is special because it concerns one of my very favorite directors, the true maverick of the 1970s, Robert Altman, and his masterful 1973 adaptation of Raymond Chandler. And whether it's a good adaptation is up to you, the viewer, the long goodbye. Here's the description on the back of the box for Kino Lorber's Outstanding Blu-ray, which really should be upgraded to 4K sometime soon a bump-up that Altman has yet to enjoy, despite making some of the most visually striking films of all time. Elliot Gould, Busting, The Silent Partner, gives one of his best performances as a quirky, mischievous Philip Marlowe in this fascinating and original send-up of Raymond Chandler's classic detective story from maverick filmmaker Robert Altman, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Nashville. Starring Nina Von Pellant, American Gigolo, Sterling Hayden, The Killing, Mark Rydell, Punchline, and Henry Gibson, The Blues Brothers, with a screenplay by Lee Brackett, The Big Sleep, The Empire Strikes Back, The Long Goodbye is a gloriously inspired subversion of the film noir genre with the, quote, sun-baked Sodom, unquote, of 1970s Hollywood as its backdrop. Private Eye Philip Marlowe, Gould, faces the most bizarre case of his life when a friend's apparent suicide turns into a double murder involving a sexy blonde, a disturbed gangster, and a suitcase full of drug money. But as Marlowe stumbles toward the truth, he soon finds himself lost in a maze of sex and deceit, only to discover that in L.A., if love is dangerous, friendship is murder. Lee Brackett whose work I discovered through my love of the aforementioned Empire Strikes Back, as I believe I've already mentioned on a previous OTM mini, took many liberties with Chandler's work, deducing that since the novel's publishing in the 1940s to the film production being mounted in the 1970s, it had become quaint and passé, and if you weren't going to make a period piece, you might as well make a sly contemporary comedy. Altman was hip to the project in 1971, while he was in Ireland directing another masterful film, Images, and became interested in taking it on, once learning that Gould, whom Altman had directed in M.A.S.H., was attached, and he loved the ending. Now, I'm not going to say what the ending is exactly, because I want you to seek this movie out at all costs and enjoy it on your own, but it does involve Marlowe killing a man in cold blood. Accordingly, Chandler diehards don't tend to care for this picture, believing that it was completely out of character for the man on the page, which is precisely why Altman was interested in it. Ever the iconoclast, he signed on only on the condition that the ending not be changed. God, I love that man. Rest in power, sir. One of the most interesting conceits of the film is that Marlowe belongs to another time. Altman and crew would refer to the character as Rip Van Marlowe, as if he had been dozing for several decades only to wake up in the midst of the 70s and try to impose the morals of a bygone age, a loser just drifting through contemporary society without changing himself to adapt. It's a great wrinkle on the source material which I'll confess I've never read. Not a big fan of literary fiction. Nonfiction, however, is my jam. But it's something that I find really interesting in adaptation. I believe that often you have to kill your darlings and harbor ill will toward the source material. Sometimes it feels completely distasteful, like in Batman v Superman. Sometimes it feels vibrant and alive and exhilarating, like in The Long Goodbye. It's amazing to think that at one point, Elliot Gould was one of the biggest stars in the world, making the cover of Time and even a sex symbol. That's not to say that he's not great. He is. Always has been, always will be. But he feels more like a character actor than a movie star. By the time of The Long Goodbye, a lot of that goodwill was squandered due to his 1971 film A Glimpse of Tiger where he squabbled with his director and co-stars and was allegedly erratic in his behavior and hadn't worked for two years. United Artists, the distributor, apparently demanded that he undergo a psychological examination to determine his mental stability. Imagine if you did that now. It would leak on the Daily Beast immediately and sink your career. You would be cancelled instantly. Speaking of cast members, the aforementioned Sterling Hayden was only cast after Altman's original choice Dan Blocker, whom he had befriended while directing episodes of Bonanza, died at the age of 43 in 1972. Altman reportedly considered leaving the project altogether until Hayden was entered into the conversation. Hayden was apparently very gregarious, despite being high and drunk throughout the entire production, and looking like an 1840s longshoreman, like he's out looking for a white whale. But perhaps that's exactly why Altman felt he could do the job. Altman liked him so much that he set him up in the house next door to his in Malibu, a location that doubled as Hayden's in-universe home on the beach. On a featurette on the Blu-ray ported over from the early 2000s MGM DVD, Altman describes his directorial style as, quote, I don't direct, I watch, unquote. That is to say, he has a two-dimensional sketch in his head, and the actors take it into three or four dimensions. He wanted the actors to create, not to ask them to do something. He wanted to be shown something new. In the same featurette, Gould discussed his approach to improvisation and stated that it was as simple as being in character and given the freedom to riff, because every shot was pre-lit and blocked, and if Altman didn't like it, he just wouldn't do it. The director wanted to have a loose atmosphere, and so there were no marks for the actors to hit, which freed them up, let them loose from the shackles of camera movement. Speaking of camera movement... Altman wanted it to be arbitrary, as if the audience had to crane their necks to follow it. He wanted us, the viewers, to think that we were voyeurs, observers, as if we're lucky to see something. His work reminds me of one shot in Rosemary's Baby, where Ruth Gordon answers a phone call in the bedroom, and Polanski frames it so that only half of her body is visible through the doorframe, designed so that the audience would lean over to get a better view as if it's a theatrical production. Altman loved his zoom lens, and was enabled by the late great cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt, whom Altman had given his first real big break when he hired him to shoot McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which did for the revisionist Western what The Long Goodbye did for the neo-noir. Together, they decided that moving the camera was part of the overall strategy, just blocking the actors and getting from point A to point B, and whatever happened in between, was incredibly fluid. Zygmunt loved to do something called flashing, which is when you expose your naughty parts to the developing film in order to get it to laugh. Kidding. Flashing is when you add a small level of exposure to the image. This can be done to the film stock before, during, or in post-production, although it's increasingly rare in this ugly digital age. When flashing, you lose contrast, so Zygmunt had to overexpose the film, giving it a golden Hollywoodish look. Zygmunt, whose interview was, like Altman's, recorded in the early 2000s, found modern colors too harsh, and felt that people would get tired of it and retreat to naturalism. And unfortunately, in the mainstream this hasn't been the case. Some more niche or independent films have been retreating to the past, most notably Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which may still be in theaters when this mini-so drops, but unfortunately, we're still headed in an overly crisp direction. Zygmunt saw cinematography as a triangle, working with actors and production designers, needing both to create compelling images, and if anything he certainly made something compelling. Altman's sense of irreverence can also be felt in the actual song, The Long Goodbye, composed for the film by one John Williams, two years before his real breakthrough on Stevie Spielberg's Jaws. Altman made sure that the song would appear throughout the picture in various forms, whether it's as an instrumental that plays on the radio, as Marlowe drives from place to place, or the chime on Nina Von Palant's doorbell, or a mariachi band in Mexico, etc. And when asked why he did such a thing, Altman said bluntly that it was just a thing to do, that there was no divine meaning. Maybe he's being modest, but there is a meaning. I don't know what it is exactly, but there has to be one, right? Or maybe it's just an elaborate, practical joke. I like that too. The long goodbye you should good-buy it. And maybe watch it as a double feature with The Big Lebowski. You can thank me later. That'll do it for now. Stay tuned for a full-blown episode next week, and two weeks from now, we'll continue the Odyssey known as OTM Mini. Don't forget to check us out on the social medias at one Pod on X, 1, that is the numeral one podcast on Instagram, one Track Mind on Blue Sky, on Facebook, on Podchaser, or send an email for perhaps a future QA to one podcast at gmail.com. Also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com/slash one podcast for exclusive bonus content and every episode early. See you soon. That's the end.